0: Welcome to Emergency Room, the COVID Diaries. This is a podcast that tells the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept across America. It's told from the perspective of the staff of a large American hospital.
1: My name's Guy Madison. I'm a registered nurse. I was reassigned initially at the beginning of the pandemic outbreak here in Seattle as a COVID coordinator at Harborview Medical Center, a large level one trauma center in Seattle, Washington. These COVID diaries will introduce you to my colleagues and coworkers who showed up every day of the pandemic and continue to show up every day of the pandemic to treat those and care for those taken by this deadly disease.
0: I'm Matthew Hall. And unlike everybody else you'll hear from on this podcast, I'm a journalist with absolutely no medical background whatsoever. We're going to provide a rarely heard inside account of how frontline medical staff responded to the virus and how they cared for those infected by it. The story is told through the eyes of Guy, who is responsible for the day-to-day and night-to-night emergency room response for incoming COVID-19 patients as well as other hospital officials and medical staff. I'm the least interesting thing about this podcast, but I'm here to ask some dumb questions. Questions you, dear listener, might want to know as well. Questions like, hey guy, where do you guys eat? Where do you have your lunch, your dinner, your breakfast? And I ask that question because I've worked at a school during a pandemic and I know that Kids, they have to eat outside. Staff, they have to eat outside. So what about you?
1: That's an interesting question, Matthew. Um, of course, there is the option to go outside. Seattle, legendarily known for its uh, wet and rainy weather, poses some um, problems as the, as the weather changes in the fall here. But really... Most people have always eaten inside at the hospital. We have a giant, you know, we're a uh, 450 plus bed hospital. We have hundreds and hundreds of staff on shift every day at the hospital. We have a giant cafeteria. Probably most people are familiar with large hospital cafeterias that gets heavily used by the staff to get their lunch. We also have a couple of little cafes around the area for coffee and small snacks. Initially, We didn't know what to do about the eating and coffee and that sort of stuff. We did shut down all potlucks. Potlucks happen at hospitals in the break rooms of all the units. We shut that down and then we realised that social distancing was needed during eating and we quickly came up with a protocol. Our cafeteria and our little cafes are still open, but like everywhere else in the world that people are probably now very familiar with, Everything is social distance. There's marks on the floor to keep people separated while they're waiting in line. And we had a giant dining room in the cafeteria where people would crowd in and eat their their meals together under normal times. Now that's been changed and we have wildly spread out tables where people can sit individually and still maintain six feet distance from each other. So that is where we eat our food at the hospital. It's the same as before. But because we have to spread out that means there's less space for everyone, and the um, hospital's organisation um, administration actually went around and created these eating areas in non-traditional dining places. So, a lot of we have a lot of hallways and skybridges in the hospital that can connect different buildings and different parts of the hospital. They often have seating areas. Those areas have now been designated eating areas where people can go and sit in isolation take their masks down because you have to wear a mask all day long at the hospital when you come to the hospital, except to eat and drink. So there's all these areas all over the hospital where you can be six feet away from other co-workers, from patients and from uh, visitors when we allow visitors and you can eat your lunch. Does that answer the question?
0: Uh, Yes, it does. I have a follow-up question and that's in schools there's supposed to be social distancing. Parents, there's rarely social distancing in a school. In restaurants, there's social distancing, in inside venues, there's social there's supposed to be social distancing. Do you find that in a hospital environment with healthcare and medical workers, social distancing guidelines? Are more adhered to than in other environments like restaurants, schools, outside, whatever? Do people pay more attention to it?
1: I think so in general, but you will remember back to our last episode with Chloe Bryson-Hahn where she actually pointed out that she goes down to the cafeteria sometimes and when she sees people sitting too close together, she, she separates them. <laughs> um, just like everyone else, we are human and the protocols and mandates are not easy to follow, not easy to remember all the time and sometimes we slip up so I think that we adhere the best that we possibly can but we could always do a better job
0: In our last episode, episode 3 we did speak with Dr. Chloe Bryson Khan, and
1: here's a fun fact, Chloe's dad was in Shanana, a legendary 60s band that actually played at Woodstock.
0: Unlike father, like daughter, Chloe is an infectious disease expert, probably one of the most experts on expertise in infectious disease you can have.
1: I would agree entirely with that. In episode two, we spoke with Matt Casier, critical care registered nurse, who explained what happens inside a COVID intensive care unit. In episode one, we spoke with Vanessa McCarowitz. She is our infection prevention operations officer at Harborview Medical Center, and she gave a fascinating overview of how it all started and what we did in the race against the clock to get our protocols ready to protect everyone at the hospital—patients and staff alike—from COVID. In this episode, we're going to speak with the CEO of Harborview Medical Center, Summer. Clueno O'Wally.
0: That's a big job, I imagine, being the chief executive officer of a medical center during a unprecedented pandemic. But first, Guy, I think we're going to have to get a little bit of background on a key part of COVID history in the United States. And that's what happened at the Life Center Northwest Nursing Home near Seattle, Washington. It played a big role, I think, in what happened in 2019 and 2020. Can you fill us in on that background?
1: Yeah, and we will hear a little more about Life Center Northwest um, when summer speaks because did have a dramatic impact on the operations of all the hospitals in the area. But essentially, Life Center Northwest was a medium-sized nursing home um, just outside this um, the Seattle City area. It's in an area called Kirkland. We had case number one here in Seattle, up in Everett, just north of the city. And initially, there was just one person. They weren't terribly sick with it, with COVID, but they did test positive for COVID and they were in a hospital up north. The next thing that happened was we discovered there was an outbreak at this nursing home and it was actually very serious. A number of the residents died very quickly from COVID and a number of them were extremely sick with COVID and needed to go to hospitals. And I'll leave the rest of that story for Summer to tell. But essentially, why nursing homes are important in the greater story is Life Centre Northwest was just one of thousands of nursing homes throughout America, where COVID swept through them and caused the incredible load on the hospitals that we saw back in early 2020. Now, the reason that that happens is because nursing homes are generally staffed by staff that are at the lower end of the pay scale in terms of healthcare workers. These workers often work in different facilities more than one job. So medical assistants might work at one two perhaps three different nursing homes in an attempt to make enough money to support themselves the problem is if you get infected and you move between facilities and you move between patients you greatly increase the risk of cross-contamination with the disease and that is essentially what we saw and that's why COVID ripped like wildfire through the nursing home communities in america so life center northwest was just the first place we identified but it happened all over the place but it did get a lot of press initially
0: so what you're telling me is uh capitalism and the failure to pay people what they're worth for their jobs played a role in the spread of the disease across the united states
1: i believe that's the big picture here matthew i think you're right there
0: that we could start another podcast about all of that.
1: We could, and that is not the subject of today's podcast. The subject is COVID and what happened at Harborview Hospital. And we're gonna speak to Summer directly, and she's gonna tell us her experience from the perspective of the Chief Executive Officer.
2: So, um, Summer Wally, I am currently the Chief Executive Officer at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington.
0: What, what does that actually mean? What does a chief executive officer of a hospital do?
2: That's a good question. Um, depends on the day. But uh, mainly the oversight of pretty much everything a hospital requires, whether that be the fiscal management, whether that be the clinical patient safety oversight, um labor oversight just responsible for ensuring that the hospital remains uh, open doors open and patient care is excellent that's basically the job of a CEO
0: how do you how does someone end up in that role do you come from CEO school or do you work your way up from the mail room in the bedsides <laughs> or, or what how does it work
2: That is actually a really good question. Um, I think there are traditional ways people become a CEO and then there's non-traditional ways. And then there's kind of two pathways. People either become a CEO because they go into the business world first and kind of go up through administration from a non-clinical perspective. So perhaps you have like an MBA, And you work uh, within different leadership jobs that are not over clinical areas within hospitals um, and and medical centers, entities. But you really kind of gravitate more towards the business side of the operation. And then some of us were clinical and gravitated more towards the administrative leadership side of hospital operations and then went back and got our business degrees later after we had had our clinical lives. So I had had my clinical life for 10 years as a speech pathologist actually at Harborview and then decided that I wanted to go into leadership, had been frustrated with previous leaders, you know, that I'd kind of watched over the years and and really felt like one of the things I thought was important for a administrator or, or, you know, increasingly higher levels of leadership at a hospital was that they needed to not only have clinical acumen, and that was a, a piece of it, but having that business background was a really important component.
1: have been at the hospital for greater than 25 years?
2: Yeah, greater than 24.
1: 24. And you just glossed over one important point there that you are a speech therapist. Mm -hmm. So tell me, when you first started out, what for people that probably don't know um, what speech therapists do in a hospital, maybe talk a little bit about how they interact with patients and some of the stuff they do across the continuum of care, even to the ICUs.
2: I think when most people think of speech, they think uh, developmental speech pathologists like in a school setting or in birth to three where you're helping with language development or articulation, right, or stuttering, uh, more developmentally acquired uh, disorders in children. And when I was in school, you um, had to get your master's in speech and hearing sciences before you could begin working, and you had to pick at that point whether you were going to go into more of that pediatric, school age, or birth to three developmental track, or if you were going to go into the medical track. And I went into the medical track, and the medical track really is looking at the flip side. It's really looking at acquired disorders that disrupt cognition, language, speech, and then the swallowing respiratory system. So taking individuals who then have some type of an acquired event, whether that is a stroke, whether that is a brain injury, whether that is a spinal cord injury, whatever the disorder becomes, working with them um, from that perspective. So in a hospital, I I actually was pretty lucky clinically. I got to spend time in all parts of the hospital from a clinical perspective. So um, on an inpatient rehabilitation floor, where we really worked very intensively with individuals post-brain injury, post-stroke in a hospital setting, trying to get them to a point where they were independent enough to move back home or into a different setting. Uh, I work in the outpatient setting, so I did a lot of outpatient therapy with individuals with similar type of acquired disorders, um, particularly brain injury. I did a ton of brain injury uh, therapy from that during that time frame. And then I moved into the ICUs and acute care where I focused more on early intervention of newly acquired disorders. So whether that was evaluating individuals before they left the hospital post-stroke to see what kinds of follow-up needs they would have and what kinds of therapy they would need post or what types of assist they would need leaving the hospital. And then also swallowing disorders that can accompany neurological deficits, right? From like a stroke or something that happens to the head.
1: Which is a big deal at Harborview, right? Because we are a stroke center. Right We're a stroke
2: center, we are brain injury center, We're spinal cord injury, right? So most of our patients come in through the emergency department. In fact, about eighty percent of our admissions in our inpatient hospital come in through the front door of the emergency department. whether that is via a helicopter coming in with a trauma or whether that is an ambulance coming in, but they come in through that door. So, Uh, we we see a wide variety of different types of disorders, right, as opposed to a lot of hospitals that have most of their admissions electively admitted through the OR. So you're choosing to have surgery and then you're coming into the hospital or you have some type of complication and you get admitted in from from the outside, like from a clinic or things like that. So it is a very different, complex group of individuals we have here at the hospital.
1: So I guess it would be fair to say that you have gone from the front line to the boardroom at Harborview Hospital in your career.
2: (laughs) I have, I have. And and sometimes it's really important for me to be able to remind people of that. I think that it is hard to be a CEO that has not had that type of connection. And and I find myself frequently reminding individuals when I'm out rounding that I did work out on these floors. I was part of this, you know, I have been part of this team. And I think that's important because... I think often um, individuals, you know, want to see the CEO as disconnected or as not understanding what happens when you're a frontline provider. So it's really important to me to remain connected to that piece of my history and that piece of my my career.
0: Did you as a CEO realize that COVID-19 was going to be something out of the ordinary for, for the hospital?
2: There's two distinct moments I remember. One was being in the boardroom right as it was starting to kind of rumble, I'll say, but this was before the nursing home in uh, Bothell in a adjacent town from Seattle had the outbreak, but it was starting to build and we were in the boardroom talking about as a leadership team, what do we need to be preparing for? So that was kind of, huh, this seems a little bit different. But I think probably the most real moment for me was we had very first day we stood up our command center. So we have our own hospital command center that had to be stood up. And watching two individuals standing by two of our leaders, Mark Taylor and uh, Steve Mitchell, talking on the phone to uh, Life Care Center, which was the Bothell nursing home, who was absolutely inundated and collapsing from a COVID outbreak. And trying to get, we were, we were their lifeline, right? That that command center and those two individuals were the ones that were talking them through what to do. We were trying to get information on how many patients they had, what types of equipment they had, what the status of each patient was. And at that point, when we were realizing, you know, how fast that outbreak went, I think all of us in that room were like, This is this is it. This is much different than anything we've ever we've ever seen before. Did you discuss
0: issues with other hospitals and other agencies how does that work do you call up your friends and say what have we got here
2: yeah although you know at the beginning the phoning a friend there were no friends at that point really one of our our hospital partners up in Everett had had a patient and so they they initially had one but Nobody else in the country was really dealing with this yet, right? And so as we started to quickly mobilize as part of view and part of UW Medicine, the system we're in as a as a health system, we were daily trying to put out policies and procedures. Here's how we're going to use um, you know, personal protective equipment, here's how we're going to use this, here's how we're going to put equipment on and off. Here's how we're going to get people in and out of the rooms. Here's how environmental services are going to operate, right? Like every day we were trying to put out procedures and policies. We were front facing with those right off the bat. That is one thing we did right off the bat was put everything out so externally others could could get to those protocols and those policies really quickly because we knew we were at the mega of what was happening. So we did have a a very strong sense of needing to make sure that we were pushing out whatever we learned to other peer facilities, whether it was in in our region and also across the country. I will say though that those changed rapidly. It wasn't like you created a policy and that's what happened, right? Our infectious disease doctors and uh, infection control teams were working tirelessly to continually adapt because this was a pandemic of a, of a disease we didn't know about, right? So we were just trying to figure it out as we went, right? We were building the airplane as we were flying, really and truly. So tons of information being pushed out. And then we really started, probably after everybody kind of realized what a big deal it was, then there was a lot of collaboration from uh, the different hospitals around the region, lots of phone calls, lots of Zoom calls, trying to ensure we were... Um, We were collaborating, communicating with each other. I do think, though, Harborview held a very unique position and continues to hold a very unique position that we launched right off the bat, and it's modified and and morphed over the pandemic, but we stood up what we call the Washington Medical Control Center, and that really was a function that became a state function. At the beginning, we stood it up as Harborview because we were the disaster um, control center for the state. It very quickly morphed into a long standing function as an arm of the uh, state emergency operations and still functions to this day to ensure that we were communicating and and were a source of communication to all healthcare facilities and entities across the state so whether that be another hospital a nursing facility a jail At the beginning, we were very much in in communication with pre-hospital, whether it was the ambulance companies or whether it was the medics, to really try to give uh, centralization and coordination to people's responses with the goal that no one facility was overwhelmed again, like what happened with the initial nursing home who sent all their patients to one hospital that was the closest to them in proximity, which tipped that hospital over, right? So the whole goal right off the bat, we watched that happen and we were trying to direct traffic to say, don't, don't overwhelm that one hospital. It happened because at that point, nobody knew what else to do. They just started offloading the patients to the quickest place they could go. And and that became the goal for Harbor Butte was to really ensure that not one hospital, not one health system became tipped over, right? That we remained we were able to, uh, and and we still do this to this day, have some sort of ability to level load.
1: So we're used to dealing with crisis because we are the level one trauma center. But interestingly, you talk about load leveling. We do that all the time, right? Just on a daily basis. Admissions throughout our area are coordinated so that one hospital is not particularly overwhelmed by a whole bunch of admissions.
2: Since COVID, Um, yeah.
1: And we have a a bunch of protocols that allow that to work. What are the challenges with coordinating that system?
2: I think the, the biggest challenge came more recently, where at the beginning, hospitals had pared down other functions and individuals weren't seeking medical care, right? Everybody retreated back and was not coming out of their houses, basically, right? And so there was a lot of capacity for COVID. As the pandemic went on and we started to see the effects of people not seeking medical care for a good deal of time, the health systems started to become overwhelmed with other types of medical conditions. And you saw that start to occur as the springtime kind of wore down. We were in a little bit of Lola COVID and right as the Lola COVID went down, we picked way up with non-COVID related medical admissions across the state. And the complexity of that was that hospitals didn't have capacity anymore. Nobody had capacity. So it became a everybody has to lock arms and do this together. It's not like there's an empty bed anywhere. We're just going to have to share the load. We're just going to have to share the burden at the bigger hospitals. Because what we realized were that the rural hospitals, smaller critical access hospitals, desperately needed help. And they weren't finding an ability to, on their own, call up other facilities that have higher level care abilities to get admission transfers. So we had to come together as a health system at the state level and say, you know, get all the CEOs to agree, this is a real statewide problem. We have to do this together. We have to help. And we're going to have to just know that even though we're all in boarding situations, we all have to say yes when that call comes. That was hard because everyone's trying to keep their own doors open, everyone's trying to ensure they have enough staff, and everyone's trying to ensure they have the capacity, which we didn't have. And, and that took more um, discussions and just protocols around how we would do that um, to get everyone to feel comfortable with that.
1: And so there's been a lot of talk uh, recently about crisis standards of care, and particularly what's been in the news is uh, Idaho and Alaska. Could you talk a little bit about that and how the uh, Washington Medical Coordination Center that you created out of Harborview has helped us, I imagine it has, in avoiding coming to that point where we are practicing in crisis standards?
2: Yeah. So first of all, the Washington Medical Coordination Center, which, which was created at Harborview by Harborview frontline leaders... Uh, the Northwest Healthcare Coalition and UW Medicine. Um, that single-handedly, though, has been the key to ensuring we don't reach crisis standards of care, right? Crisis standards of care are very different than a single hospital feeling like they're in crisis because, you know, staffing may be challenging in a day, right? Crisis standards of care means you are changing a delivery of care to individuals, right? You are making choices. And Washington State's goal has been, and the, and the health systems across the state have locked arms to say we will do whatever it takes to keep the state out of crisis standards of care. It has become increasingly challenging because our our neighboring states have gone in, and some of that has spilled over as they've gone into trouble, but because we have that one source of truth and that one coordination center. That coordination center has been feeding information to the state. And so there's very good transparency to know at any given day I get reported out, you know, what part of the state is having problems, what hospitals are in trouble, where there's outbreaks, where there's staffing crises, and everyone else is able to then level load to try to help out. So that area doesn't become too inflated, right? So we start bringing people, you know, a little bit farther than they would typically transfer or whether it's all the way from east all the way over the mountains to the west we are you know making those transfers throughout each and every day 24 hours a day uh, i will say mark taylor as the operational director of the wmcc and uh, dr steve mitchell who is the medical director of the wmcc have been the geniuses behind uh, that work not only how to operationalize it but also literally taking the call. (laughs) They have others on the team now that help, but those two really have been uh, the linchpin for the state of Washington.
1: So just to put those choices about how care is administered in perspective, we haven't gone there because of the work of the WMCC. And so we don't have to make any choices on the standard of care that anyone gets. Everyone gets the highest level of care, correct? Correct.
2: Right. We are moving people. So if a rural hospital calls into the WMCC and says, "I have a patient, you know, with whatever it is, they need a higher level of care. we can't we can't care for them here. The WMCC is working directly with that hospital to get that patient into a hospital that can care for their needs, right? Having one facility have to make choices that are very difficult around who gets care and who doesn't, that has been avoided in the most part by being able to have a call to that coordination center who can then say, okay, you have a patient that needs to be moved to a higher level of care. Let me find a place for you. And all of these great hospitals working together to say, yep, if it's our turn, we're taking the patient. Or the situation of one individual hospital or region starting to see so many COVID admissions that they start to get overloaded and taking COVID admissions out to make sure we're level loading that hospital so one hospital doesn't get as overloaded. That isn't to say that hospitals have not been under immense pressure, right, immense pressure, but none of them have gone into actual crisis standards of care. I have seen hospitals um, in this state that don't have the experience and and resources that a hospital like Harborview has for handling emergencies do incredible work maintaining operations with extremely high numbers of COVID patients and extremely sick individuals. And it has been really impressive, really impressive work by all the hospitals in this state.
0: What's what's interesting for me over the past 18 months to two years, was how this whole experience with COVID-19 was different for everybody within the United States,
2: Mm -hmm. different
0: professionally for different hospitals in Washington State, for example, different personally for people. Everyone had different experiences in, in how they dealt with it, whether they got it, whether they didn't, and that moves forward. In New York City, for example, where I'm at, Our streets were empty, the city was silent when we were in lockdown and it was seriously from a dystopian movie, a lot Mm -hmm. of the experience. All you could hear for a a week or so were ambulance sirens in, in the street. It was very strange. What brought home the reality, though, to me, was when freezer trucks became parked outside some of the local hospitals in Manhattan and Brooklyn. The reason there were freezer trucks there were to store bodies because the hospital morgues were overloaded. Did you have a similar experience like that? And what did you do with bodies if your morgue got overloaded? And how do you come to that decision? Is it an easy one? It's on the flowchart or what?
2: So, you know, we were incredibly lucky. I think we did experience a different COVID. um, We had a different COVID experience in the state of Washington Then other states, uh, and particularly uh, New York, first of all, we shut down really, really quickly um, when it first hit. And I I think that's been talked about a lot uh, nationally that, you know, Washington State shut down extremely quickly, which helped with the initial COVID response. There's probably lots of things that will come out later that we'll talk about how that really impacted delayed care to individuals for other types of disorders, right, or other types of sickness. But um, so you had a state shut down very quickly, so you didn't have the numbers, never grew to the same population density for COVID. We did not experience any given time that we went outside of normal operations for our, our more capacity. We always, as as UW Medicine as a system, have a additional capacity because we often have individuals who it may take longer for a family member or for the state or the, the county to help um, determine what happens to the body, post a body being, you know, uh, passing away. So we have additional capacity and we never had to go beyond that additional capacity. So we were very lucky that way.
1: Yeah, I think just a quick clarification. So King County Coroner's organization is garrisoned at our facility within the compound of Harborview. So we have that support there. And I think what someone was talking to was a lot of uh, cases that come in because of trauma, different types of trauma, gunshot wounds, things like that require longer to process than a uh, deceased process would in a, for an individual in a different hospital.
2: Yep, exactly. So we're used to having some need for capacity buildup. <laughs>
1: What scared you both professionally and personally, and they don't have to be the same thing with the whole pandemic
2: hitting? I think there are two different things. I'll start professionally. What has scared me the most, it was not the initial impact of the of the pandemic. It has been the, the long-term impact to the workforce and to the resiliency of healthcare providers and the ability to think that we will be able to sustain a workforce in this country that wants to be at the bedside and that feels like they have enough capacity in them to remain at the bedside. This took an incredible toll on the workforce across the country in all areas, but what it's done to frontline providers scares me because it it doesn't stop, right? It, you know, it may seem like it it has gotten better for other individuals who've gone back to work or, or, you know, starting to kind of get out and live their lives again. But, you know, the healthcare providers, the bedside providers, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the imaging techs, you know, all these individuals in the hospital, the hospital assistants, they continue to see very sick individuals. Almost all are unvaccinated, continue to be impacted. And that is wearing them very, very thin. It is a very hard, um, it is really hard to go out on the floors and see how tired people are, and not just physically, but emotionally tired. Personally, what scared me the most and, and continues to scare me is that I have two young children. I have an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, and I just think this is a huge part of their childhood that's kind of being stolen from them in a way, and, and that makes me upset. That scares me. You know, I, I heard my son the other day say something about, oh, well, that was pre-COVID, that you know that was pre-pandemic, and it was something about him do being able to do things, and and I think they'll just really have this pre and post, right? What it was like before, what life was like before, and what life is like after, and that that and that's hard.
1: Yeah, I'll agree entirely there, and you know people look in, or they look at the news, and they think that it's all going away, but truthfully, the coordination center is still working as hard as it always has, and. Uh, correct me if i'm wrong but i did see the numbers before i went home last week that our census is still way above 100%,
2: correct? Well, above 100% and that that's covid and non-covid but that takes a toll on our our frontline workers. Was it
0: possible to have a victory for you professionally during this pandemic?
2: You know, i think the victory and and um, i don't know if i would say it's for me but it's it's for Harborview for the future is, um, you know, we were on a track to have a, uh, the county, King County, and this, this hospital that I'm the CEO of is, is the county hospital, and we were going on to the election Ballot last year to have what we call a bond for capital, and a capital investment for new buildings for the hospital, and it was a very large bond. Um, 1.74 billion was going on to the voters of King County to approve, and it had to be approved by a supermajority, and um, it was very tenuous, uh, particularly before the pandemic. Whether you know county residents, voters would how they would look at this, you know, another increase to their taxes, you know, what that would feel like, and um, the pandemic brought an appreciation to healthcare and to Harborview in particular that I never, no amount of work we did was as much as just the pandemic and people watching the response that Harborview gave. That bond passed with flying positivity. Largest bond the county has ever done and it passed with resounding yes votes. So that secures the future of Harborview because we will now be able to take that $1.74 billion that the county voters gave us and build new single patient rooms for infectious disease, build a new emergency department for the trauma, build new ORs, you know, build a campus that is state-of-the-art and that the King County residents and those that we serve as part of our mission will be able to uh, use and benefit from for years and years to come, long yeah. after I'm gone out of this position. And I think the pandemic helped with that.
1: It's interesting that uh, that something as positive as like creating more beds and more capacity for the community can, can come out of something as terrible as the, it's almost ironic that it could come out of something as terrible as this pandemic.
2: Yeah, it is ironic, yeah.
1: Anything that you think you would have done differently
2: mm-hmm. I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots of things, but we didn't foresee. I, I didn't foresee, and I don't think any of us really focused enough. We were, we were so enmeshed in trying to deal with um, the continued, you know, the next wave that was supposed to come, the next surge that was supposed to come around the holidays and then another surge that was supposed to come in February and planning for that and staffing for that we didn't really focus enough on the resiliency of the workforce. And I think if I had it to do over again, we would be much more um, engaged in, in ensuring that our frontline workers were, were more taken care of. And I, I think that's my biggest regret is that we were a dollar short and a day late on on that. And I, I wish we could go back and give them more support than than was given at that time.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, as you know, I've been at the hospital for 20 years myself and I'm there like I think a lot of people at the hospital because the mission that drives the hospital is something that we connect to and it's easy mm-hmm. to, I'm sure it's easy to imagine that because of the strength of the pull of that mission that other things can get, you know, that you don't imagine that there's other things that will come right. up that will dent that resilience or dent that, um, that ability to want to be there.
2: Right, exactly, and and I think we underestimated that as we were trying to put out fires. It felt like we were in a war room. It still feels like we're in a war room, and it's just one crisis after another after another. But I wish I would have had more um, foresight into into that the staffing crisis we now are facing.
0: Summer, finally, how has this changed your job for the future mm-hmm. as well? I mean, you didn't when you started your career, you didn't think you'd be CEO through a A pandemic but here you are so how how has this changed your job
2: well I think it's changed everything and nothing and that sounds kind of weird but when the rest of the world as you said Matt were shut down nobody was out on the streets nobody was doing anything my job never changed I was coming into work every day I was doing different things as far as being a command center most of the day and things like that but my my work life didn't change i was still i was still within the same environment i've always been in i would say probably what has changed the most is how we connect at work my job is so different because there's it's so much harder to connect with other leaders with the with the staff with the workforce with the providers because the world has become so isolated And I feel like I have so much more of a hill to climb to feel connected to the incredible people we have here that give their lives to Harborview. And as the CEO, I want to be the partner to them, but it's very hard to connect when you are on Zoom in an office all day long. You're not walking the halls. You're not going between meetings. You're not uh, seeing people in meetings. You know, you just don't connect the same. You hold staff meetings and leadership meetings on Zoom and you feel like everybody's got their screen on black, right? They're not listening. They're not connecting. It's, it's, it's a very hard thing to think about as a leader is how you're going to be creative to build that kind of connection in a world that's so remote.
0: That was Summer Cleveno-Wally, the Chief Executive Officer at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. And what I like about this podcast is hearing from people we wouldn't usually hear from about how COVID-19 affected them and their job during the pandemic that we're still in. And that was a great overview into what takes place broadly in hospitals during covid
1: yeah, and I'd like to remind people that um, COVID is still an active concern. The disease is still taking lives. At the moment, at at Harbourview Medical Center, we have fifteen patients admitted with COVID. Fourteen of them are unvaccinated, and four of them are on ECMO, which you know, if you've been listening to the COVID diaries, um, is the most intensive treatment that we can do to save the life of these patients.
0: You can join us next time for the next episode of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries. And finally get to say this. If you like what you're listening to, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. Write a review. Tell people we're awesome. Apparently that stuff works.
1: Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries is written and presented
0: by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. Produced... By Guy Madison, Matthew Hall, and Ruinous Media. Music by Palm Frauds, Mud Honey, Beauty Hunters, Palant. If you would like to contact us, or need to contact us, just go to ruinousmedia.com.